According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 24 is our passage once again today. Luke 24, the, the Emmaus Road. Jesus had an appearance to two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Similar to his appearance to Mary Magdalene, she didn't recognize him right off the bat. She thought he was the gardener. Same thing happens here. They don't recognize him. And they talk to him for the whole way into the village. And then he acts like he's moving on. And they invite him to come in and stay with them. They still don't recognize him. Not until he starts breaking bread and sharing. Then uh, evidently those uh, motions, the mannerisms or what have you, it uh, became a trigger to them. And they, it finally hit them who it was that, uh, that they were listening to. And so this is, uh, this is where we are. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask the Father to bless our time in His Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You. Father, we are creatures. You are the Creator. Father, we are finite in our being, in our thinking, and yet, uh, Father, you have invited us into the infinite provision of your word. And Father, uh, so far as we are dependent upon you, we're going to study your truth this morning, even the deep things of God, recognizing that our finite understanding can't possibly come to grips with any of this. But Father, your Holy Spirit indwells each one of us and guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so, Father, we call upon you once again this hour to manifest your faithfulness, to open the eyes of our understanding, to speak to our ears. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Uh, We are really close to the end of this development as far as it goes. Uh, But given that we have uh, Ethel back, we'll just just start over and get her caught up. (laughs) Oh, we missed you. All right. Uh, as far as we deal with this, it starts off with behold two of them, behold two of them. And who are them? You know what they say. And anytime you're talking about them or they, you want to find out, well, who's them or they, I believe two of them refers to the others or all the rest from verse nine that, uh, the women uh, reported on the empty tomb and they went, they reported to the disciples, uh, to the 11 and to all of the rest. Now, admittedly, that's a little bit awkward because them, the nearest antecedent to them, would be the apostles. Um, We see in verse 10, there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. And that appears to be the closest antecedent for them. In any event, as as you work through these verses, you understand there's not a, a clear linear progression anyway. There appears to be a lot of overlap. There appears to be a lot of uh, jumble in terms of the events and how they're happening, uh, in just in the way that they're being uh, related here. Uh, verse 11, these words appeared nonsense, and they would not believe them, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, went away to his home, marveling, and what had happened. And so behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. And so even if we allow the them to be disciples, we do find one of them is named in verse 18, one of them named Cleopas. 
And I think that has to be added to the mix as well when we recognize these aren't the 11. uh, The two of them are two of the rest from verse 9, besides the 11 that were with them there in in, uh, Jerusalem. In any event, one of them we know by name, the other one we don't know by name. We know Cleopas and we don't know the other. Secondly, what is Emmaus? means hot springs and as you might expect there are a number of places that are named hot springs i think everywhere they found a hot springs it's like in the united states you know you've got hot springs arkansas and hot springs texas and hot springs washington and some cases you've got multiple hot springs even in the same state uh so it's not surprising that we have different emmauses uh in uh, the ancient world um, not 100% agreement on uh, the exact location for this particular Emmaus. Uh, to this day, there's three or four leading candidates. I prefer the Arab town that uh, in modern day is, is labeled as Kubeba. I think it's preferable to the Emmaus Nicopolis location. Different aspects there. Thirdly, they were prevented from recognizing Jesus. They were prevented from recognizing Jesus. And this... Uh, provides an interesting set of circumstances. If you are having ministry to people who don't know who you are, um, it gives you maybe a little anonymity, a little freedom, uh, as it were. You still want to speak the truth in love. You still want to uh, bear fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ and be obedient to the will of God the Father. But it does change somewhat the circumstances if you happen to be in a mall or a Jiffy Lube or somewhere and they don't know you're a pastor. And so then they start a conversation and you're talking about different things and they still don't know that you're a pastor. And so you have a, a particular anonymity and freedom to, uh, to discuss certain things and their guard is let down because they don't know that you're a pastor. The moment they find out you're a pastor, then they you know, close their ears and don't care what you have to say because obviously uh, you're prejudiced as a pastor. All right, so they were prevented from recognizing Jesus, similar to the experience Martha had, similar to the experience the disciples are, are all going to have in uh, John chapter 21. They're going to be out there fishing, and, and they're not going to know it's the Lord until finally it hits John that it's the Lord that's telling them to uh, let their nets down on, on that particular side of the boat. All right, last week we spent most of our time in main point four. That their conversation was on current events, the happenings, conversation on current events. And this is common, not only in scripture, but common in our experience in modern times. Current events are your happenings. And happenings are the things that we can talk about in a kind of a neutrality sense. It's a way of speaking about things without talking about a cause, without talking about a purpose, uh, without talking about God or, or what he might be doing. We just talk about things that happen. And you talk about things that happen in uh, in generic neutral ways, and, and then you can really uh, complain about stuff that happens. <laughs> because uh, if it just happens, then it's you know nobody's fault, and it's just bad luck for you. And, and why do these things always happen to me? And happenings. And anytime you plunge into the happenings without divine viewpoint, then you plunge into the human subjectivity that derives their happiness based upon the happenings. And the word happy comes from hap, comes from happenstance and the, the happenings of what takes place. And if, if my happiness was determined based on what happens from day to day or moment by moment, uh, how pathetic would that be? We, we're supposed to have the joy, the makarios happiness or the joy of, uh, of being in the will of God, of being like-minded with God the Father and Jesus Christ, having fellowship with his son, that inner happiness of, of joy that we have in divine viewpoint ultimately 
is irrelevant to our circumstances. You know, if somebody says, hi, how are you? Well, it's irrelevant, but thanks for asking. The, uh, the, the happenings uh, have no bearing upon how happy or unhappy I am in the moment. Maybe I'm very unhappy, but that's irrelevant too. Because ultimately speaking, even when I have unhappiness, I still have joy. And that's the, uh, that's the inner reality of, of a walk with Jesus Christ. So uh, aspects like that. Anyway, we're dealing with the happenings, and these are the things that were taking place. Things that are taking place. And this is what they're talking about. Sumbaino. It just all comes crashing down. All comes falling together. Okay? Let the chips fall where they may. And if they all fall together, then you have your sumbaino, things that happen to take place. Or your ginamai, things that just become. Things that are. And it's, an, it's rather idiomatic in many places. We spent some time last week looking at all those uh, verses in Luke. I think we benefit if we, if we rephrase things away from the neutrality of just stuff happening, all right? Uh, and away from the neutrality of, of things happening, okay? My car was broken into. It happened, right? Well, okay, let's talk about the reality. Let's speak of God and his plan. Let's speak about God and his purpose in terms of what God permitted, in terms of what God designed, in terms of the test that God uh, laid before me and laid before my family and things of that nature. Let's take it out of the neutrality and put it in, in terminology that includes God as an active agent in, in my life. And I think that we will do much better with it. The early church understood this, that happenings were to be accepted as the will of God for your life. If it happens, then God either directed it or permitted it. So don't grumble over what happens. Don't grumble over your happenings, such as in Didache 3.10. Accept as good the things that happen to you, knowing that nothing transpires apart from God. Okay, Now that's not the Bible, but I think that's a reflection in the early church fathers of how they were shaped by the doctrine from the New Testament in recognizing that when God unfolds His will for your life, if He allowed it to happen or if He directed it to happen, then he's got a purpose for why it happened. And so you just say, okay, thank you, Father. And this is how we're able to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Similar application there in Barnabas. He has uh, accept as good the things that happen to you, knowing that nothing transpires apart from God. It goes on to say to not be double-minded or double-tongued. And I wonder about that. If you don't accept the things that happen, then I don't think you can avoid being double-minded. Because now you start picking and choosing. You start picking and choosing. Well, I like the good things that happen. I don't like the bad things that happen. <laughs> and how quickly do you become double-minded and double-tongued if, uh, if you're a slave to your circumstances and details of life? I think I, I shared this last week as well. It was one of the earliest doctrines I ever learned from, from Pastor Theme was mastery of the circumstances and details of life. The fact that you're not, we're not puppets. We're not, we're not slaves. We're not just um, you know, helplessly drifting from, from one crisis to the next. That sure, there's circumstances and details. There always will be. And yet, they don't master us. We have the mastery because we have the, we're overcomers in Christ. And uh, anyway, different applications there I've always come to appreciate. All right. Moving right along. I forgot to turn my mouse on. There we go. How do you turn on your mouse? Careful. All right. There we go. Why does such a thing cross your mind even? Okay. There's an interesting progression. 
There's an interesting progression here, and um, talk leads to more talk, and more talk leads to more talk. And before you know it, talking becomes arguing. And before you know it, you've actually talked too much about something. <laughs> and the, the vocabulary is interesting from verse 14 to verse 15 to verse 17. And I kind of prefer the Holman in this regard, where they have discussing, arguing, and disputing as the uh, translations. In the New American Standard, it's talking, discussing, or exchanging words. New King James even has a fourth term that they squeeze in there somehow in the, uh, in the Old King James. Uh, talking, conversing, reasoning, as well as a reference to the conversation that takes place. But we can see it. Uh, verse uh, 14, they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. All right, well, nothing wrong with that. And then while they were talking and discussing, two more terms. And they're all different. They're all different in the Greek. They're all different vocabulary. Okay, And uh, so discussion turns to argument, turns to disputing. I think that's a good way of, of uh, showing the progression here. And then Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. And he says to them, what are these words that you are exchanging? There's our fourth expression. So there's, there's a good opportunity for a fourth expression there. These words that you are exchanging. Okay? Somewhat idiomatic as well. We talk about the same thing as well. We're going to have words. Okay? If somebody tells you they want to have some words with you. That may not be a very pleasant experience, but okay, I'm there. Let me know. <laughs> um, we'll see how it turns out. And yet everything they're speaking is minus faith. Look at the rebuke of the Lord here in verse 25. He says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. When they're slow to believe, that means that their conversation is not being shaped by faith. That they're fools, all right? They're morons. Did you look that up? Is it morons? Anyway, we can look that up later. Um, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You realize that they have a finite understanding. And what they know, they don't know what they think they know. And even the little they do know is confused. They say, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. In verse 21. And they're all broken hearted. We were hoping that he was our redeemer. He was your redeemer. That's why he died on the cross, you moron. All right. And I'm not calling him that. Jesus called him that. All right. Hey, is it moron? Uh, okay. In any event, foolish men, not, they're ignorant. They're ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. But notice it doesn't stop them from talking. Okay. If, if ignorance kept people from talking, we'd have a lot quieter place. Okay. <laughs> I think half of our politicians would be out of office because, you know, they keep talking and talking and talking and, and their ignorance doesn't seem to slow them down any. All right. It was all without faith and did not edify as Jesus uh, edified when he spoke and explained the scriptures. And I find this remarkable. They said to one another, finally, when, when their eyes were opened... Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. You know, the moment they know who he is, he's gone. Um, and they said to one another, we're not our hearts burning within us. You know, when the word of God is having impact, when the power of the Holy Spirit is taking hold, there's a reality there. And I believe this happens in the dynamic of the face-to-face -face ministry. This happens in the dynamic, and don't get me wrong, if you miss a class, you can download the MP3 and get caught up on content. But what do you miss in terms of the active role of the Holy Spirit at that time, in that place? 
that when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, that when the, the congregation is gathered together, there is a power. Where two or three are gathered together, I am there in your midst. All right? It doesn't say when you're you know, sitting at home in your underwear playing the MP3 player. Okay? There's, a, there's a dynamic at work when, uh, when the, the flock is gathered. Were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us, Notice, speaking did not turn into endless debate, endless back and forth, and well, what do you think? And well, what do you think? And well, that's an interesting opinion. I, don't, I disagree with that. All right. You know, you wrap up a, a Bible class in Romans 13, and, and you hear, well, yeah, I don't agree with that. That's, that's your opinion anyway. I don't think I have to submit to my government. Okay. You know, glad, uh, glad you wasted an hour listening to my opinion. Um, but I didn't think I was up here giving my opinion. I, I thought I was showing you scriptures. So, all right. Well, that's interesting opinion you have about my opinion. <laughs> Shall we discuss opinions? All right. Were not our hearts burning within us? There should be an impact from the Word of God if indeed you are hungering after truth. So, we'll deal with that as we move on today. These disciples had a partial knowledge, but no understanding. They had a partial knowledge, but no understanding. And sadly, I think this is the bulk of Christianity today. I think this is the bulk of, uh, of the, uh, the, the warm and fuzzies that, uh, that our churches have today. They have a partial understanding or a partial knowledge, but not the understanding. They, uh, they knew that he died on the cross, but they failed to appreciate its spiritual significance. They knew that he died on the cross. Christians today will tell you he died on the cross. But why did he die on the cross? What was achieved on the cross? Uh, was it just jealousy by religious leaders? You'll hear that today. You know, you'll hear that today. Well, you know, the Jewish leaders, they were jealous of him. The Romans were jealous of him. They thought he was a threat. They put him to death. And, you know, that's the way it goes. A lot of religious leaders are, become threats and then they're persecuted. Jesus is no different than Buddha or Muhammad or, you know, other religious leaders. Look how they, look how they mistreated Joseph Smith. And, you know, it's just all the same. And you hear this garbage as if Jesus was just some other religious leader who showed up out of nowhere and decided, hey, I'm going to start a new religion. I'm going to change Judaism. I'm going to create my own flavor of stuff and people start following me. Okay, no, that's not, that's not the New Testament at all. They knew that he died on a cross. And again, you see this hopelessness and you see the sadness. And... Uh, he asked them, what are these words you're exchanging with one another you're walking? And I like this. Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Are you really that clueless? And, and they, they view themselves as superior to him, and yet they don't even know what they're talking about. He has the answers they need. And they said the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, Mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Well, he is a prophet. He is mighty in deed and word, but more than a prophet, right? Don't just limit him as a prophet. Yes, he's a prophet, but he's also priest and king. He's the Christ, the Messiah. Why don't they, they don't say Jesus the Christ. They say Jesus the Nazarene. Not God made flesh, but a man... Uh, a prophet mighty in deed and word. 
And then verse 20, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. I shared with you last week how inferior that is to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, where Peter says he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You put to death in the hand of godless men. There's divine viewpoint. God the Father's plan was achieved, even working through the negative volition of fallen man to do it. These two disciples don't have that divine viewpoint to testify to that. Delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And as far as they're concerned, that's the end of the story. There's stuff they can talk about that happened after that, but they don't believe it. All they can say is Jesus died on a cross. Well, we heard stories that they can't find the body now, but we don't know what to think about that. They go on in verse 21 and you see more of their confusion. So I think verse 19 shows uh, an, a, an incomplete recognition of who Jesus is, limiting him to simply a prophet rather than the Christ. And I think verse 20 shows a strictly human political view of what's going on. These people today think that our nation's problems are economic or political. All right. Don't have the divine viewpoint to see the spiritual truth behind it. And then verse 21, I think, shows their, their total misunderstanding. We were hoping. You know that, what that tells you? They don't hope this anymore. They believe now it's not true. We were hoping not anymore, though. No, we don't believe it's the case. That it was he who was going to redeem Israel. And now we have no hope. Israel can't be redeemed. There is no redemption for Israel because he's dead. They have lost their hope because he died. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But we don't hope that anymore. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. It's part of the testimony we have to the Friday crucifixion and the Sunday resurrection. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, we don't believe any of this, but this is what they said. We didn't see him risen. We didn't see the angels if you can believe what women tell you, you know, who believes women anyway? <laughs> you see how gloomy they are? You know, women, they'll just say anything. <laughs> All right, this is, this is why it's so glorious. God was pleased to have women as his first, testimony, uh, his first witnesses to his resurrection. The men were still hung over and sleeping in bed when the women were there early in the morning. All right. Some of us who were with us, some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They found it exactly as the women had said. In other words, no body. Stone rolled away. But him they did not see. Didn't see him. Didn't see any angels. Who knows? The body's gone. That's all we know. And why do we know that? Not because the women said so, because we went and checked it out. A couple of men went and looked at it. We'll trust the men. <laughs> okay. Anyway. They knew that Jesus died on the cross but failed to appreciate the spiritual significance. They heard about the resurrection, but they remained skeptical. They heard about the resurrection, but they remained skeptical. I wonder how common that is today for believers who trust that he died on a cross. They trust that by faith in him they can have eternal life. 
But what's different about him going to heaven and my mom going to heaven or any other dead person going to heaven? What's significant about him rising bodily on the third day? What's significant about his resurrection glory? They've got no concept for it. Because to have a concept for it means they've got to have a concept for walking in the newness of life. Considering ourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Considering ourselves to be his slaves. And um, most Christians today, that's not, that's not even in their thinking. They're happy to not go to hell when they die, but for right here, right now, they're just living their life as, you know, unto the world rather than unto the Lord. They heard about the resurrection, but they remained skeptical. Okay, like our visitor here four weeks ago came in at 9.55, wanted to ask me a bunch of questions about our uh, alarm system. And I, oh, I'll answer whatever you want to ask. But, you know, but I, I got class starting in five minutes. You know, you want to stay for class? Okay. And he was the alarm guy. I mean, he has every right to ask me those questions and, and whatever. Um, you know, it's their company that put them in and their company that we pay every month. But, you know, not now. It's 9.55. I got class in five minutes. I tell you what, why don't you have a seat? Stay for class. We're, uh, it was, we were dealing with the resurrection. It was, uh, it was uh, the life of Christ on the resurrection just a few weeks ago. And uh, I said, yeah, have a seat. We're, we're talking about the resurrection in the empty tomb. And he looked at me with this puzzled look on his face like, resurrection? I said, I think I heard about that. <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> we got some teaching for you. If you don't know what it is, then... You need to hear about it. All right. So Jesus calls them foolish. Jesus calls them foolish and taught them beginning with Moses. Now to me, these verses are incredible. 25 through 27. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. There's so much right there. And then it moves on. Was it not necessary? Yes, it is necessary. Was it not is a rhetorical means of getting you to answer yes. (laughs) Okay. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? See, when you start to identify with the whole counsel of God's word, you start to learn the necessary. You start to learn the have-tos. You start to learn the plan of God from Alpha to Omega and why some things provided for other things and why some shadow doctrine prepared for a reality and why the reality makes certain things necessary. Why was the cross necessary? Why was Jesus in Gethsemane praying, if it at all possible, let this cup pass from me? But Jesus Christ admitted it is necessary. He says, not my will, but thine be done. The necessity that God himself is under. He has to be true to himself, has to be true to his promises, has to be true to his character. He cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly. He cannot save us apart from his righteousness being satisfied. Until righteousness and justice are satisfied, God's love and God's grace cannot be extended towards anybody. That's why the cross is necessary. To understand the have-tos of Scripture takes work, takes diligence to study to show ourselves approved. You can't be a fool and you can't be slow of heart. You've got to believe not just what the Bible says, all that the Bible says. Do you see the absolute in there? Foolish uh, Foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That means you're going to start with Moses, but then you're going to take David... You're going to take 
the uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah. You're going to take the minor prophets, the twelve. You're going to take the whole spectrum of God's revealed word. And you've got to put it together. You've got to put it together. So, well, that's too much work. I don't want to do that. I just want to show up and listen to about ten minutes of, you know, a little feel-good thing and told I'm okay, you're okay. Be a good person. Do a good turn daily. You know, it's almost like a Boy Scout motto or something. Be prepared and off I go. No. I've got to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You mean I'm supposed to understand how Genesis connects to Jeremiah? That sounds complicated. I don't know. Really? Well, you do that. You study. You, you, you know, you do that. Just tell me what to believe. Tell me what to think. No, no, no. We're not a cult. You're commanded to study to show yourself approved. Workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, I think we've got a lot here. Uh, and this foolishness, we've got to understand. Foolishness. What a terrible circumstance. We know why the unbelievers are foolish. They're following the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. But what a terrible circumstance for believers. Being foolish is more than a simple contrast with the wise. Foolishness is a terrible circumstance for believers. We started off by getting saved by grace through faith. Are we going to let ourselves be bewitched like those foolish Galatians? Foolishness is a terrible circumstance for believers. It serves as a suitable description for the life without Christ, Titus 3.3. That's not why He saved us. He didn't save us so that we can just be fools for the rest of our lives. In fact, Ephesians says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's part of our walk. Not being drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So when God calls us fools, we better pay attention and better say, you know something? I need to get with the program. I need to be thinking biblically. I need to be in the Word daily. Connecting Scripture to Scripture. And we'll show this to you here today. And slow of heart better be my warning sign that I'm one step short of hardness of heart. Slow of heart is one step short of hardness. The hardness of heart warnings that we have Luke 9, 44 and 45, Hebrews 5, 11, James 1, 19. I don't want to be hard of heart. And there's warnings in the New Testament against believers being hard of heart. All right. And if I'm slow to hear, I'm in trouble. Before, we, before I know it, I'm done hearing. You know, when you're slowing down, that means you're slowing down on your way to a stop. James tells us to be slow to speak. <laughs> These guys were quick to speak and didn't know what they were talking about. I love that in James 1.19. Be slow to speak. Be swift to hear. So don't be slow to hear. Be swift to hear. That means, uh, that means you know, you observe what your appetite is. You observe uh, where your growth is. And you say, uh, what should I be doing about increasing that? You know, why am I content with uh, once a week? Why am I content with three times a month? Why am I content with, you know, three times a month becomes 36 or 40 times a year? Really? That's my appetite is 40 times a year? When there's 300 available to me? And I'm taking 40? 
All right. Ask myself, am I quick to hear or am I slow to hear? The prophets beginning with Moses. Look at this expression, point C. And this is where we ran out of time, and I really, really want to focus on this today. The prophets. And then beginning with Moses. And then from the prophets. We've got a chain of terms here in 25. Slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So we start with the prophets. And then he goes beginning with Moses. You see this in verse 27? Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. So in verse 25 we have the prophets. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and then with all the prophets. He began to explain the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is a whole council approach. This actually establishes the pattern which forms the tradition of this congregation, of this ministry, of this style of teaching. All right, we're going to have a conference coming up in October whereby we uh, are, are building on Romans 6 on th- uh, the thankfulness that you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you are committed. The form of teaching to which we are committed is different here than it is elsewhere. You know, the, the, the Methodists or the Lutherans or whatever, they, they don't have this form of teaching to which they are committed. Why do we have this form of teaching to which we are committed? Why do we have a literal hermeneutic? Why do we compare Scripture to Scripture? Why do we have a whole council approach to the Word of God? Because we're imitators of Christ and this is how He did it. He had a literal hermeneutic. We have a literal hermeneutic. He had a literal homiletic. We have a literal homiletic. We get it from him. So we have a systematic Bible study. Systematic Bible study. He says, you guys are maladjusted to truth. And in order to remedy that, it has to be done systematically. He doesn't say, hey, let's go get involved in a big music program and feel good about ourselves. He says, let's begin with Moses. Let's start with Genesis. All right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's start there. Beginning with Moses. That means we start at the beginning. We take it from the top. We show the fall of man. We show the, the uh, rede- redemption that was promised in the seed of the woman promise. We show the progression of what follows through Genesis. What do we have? We have an Abrahamic covenant. What do we have in Genesis? We have the progression. What do we have in, in Exodus? We have the law. We have the, the priesthood that's given to Israel. We have the shadows and the typology. Everything that points ahead to the coming of Christ in the Passover and the sacrifices and the offerings. So let's start with Moses. But then let's go to all the prophets. We have a systematic Bible study comparing Scripture with Scripture, synthesizing the whole counsel of God. What does it say in Deuteronomy 4.2? If you take away from the Word of God or if you add to it, you are cursed. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. You shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. People do it all the time. They do it all the time. People, uh, you know, Pentecostals are speaking in tongues. Why? Well, they're taken away from the Word of God. 
They're ignoring the verses that say tongue was, tongues will cease. They're, obeying the ver- they're, they're taking away the verses that say tongues are for a sign, not to the believing, but to unbelieving. They take away the doctrine from 1 Corinthians 14 that explains why Isaiah 28 establishes the boundaries for the gift of tongues in the early church. They've taken away from the Word of God. Then they add to the Word of God. They say everybody should speak in tongues, even though 1 Corinthians says everybody doesn't speak in tongues, do they? And so they add to the Word of God. You shall not add to the Word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it. What happens when you take away from it is when you start cherry-picking. You start picking and choosing. You find uh, you know, a little verse you say is a, is a proof text, and it's really a pretext. All right? And the only way that it can stand is if you pretend these other verses aren't there. And so by ignoring these and you build your case on this, what are you left with? You've taken away from the Word of God. And you're putting yourself under a curse. All right. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Uh, Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. This becomes our pattern. Interestingly enough, this comes at a time of apostasy. This comes at a time when they were scornful of the prophets. And God chooses that moment to describe what to him is normal for how he teaches. A little bit here, a little bit there. Uses baby talk to make it clear that we're all babies. Isaiah 28. And this is where we get our line upon line and precept upon precept, the pattern for which we teach. And you'll notice in the context for this, it's a pronouncement of woe. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of idolatry, the kingdom that's going to be that's carried away by Assyria. The proud crowd of the crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. So much for their glory. And um, it's interesting the. Uh, They are still His chosen people in spite of themselves. God will have an eternal glory in spite of their rebellion. Interesting. Uh, Verse 6 says, A spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. So what condition are your people in when your priest and your prophet are themselves just drunk out of their gourd? They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgments. <laughs> uh, so uh, prophesying under the influence. Yeah, that'll turn out well. <laughs> okay. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Gets pretty vivid, doesn't it? Pretty descriptive of where they are. So he says, to whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? He says, you know, a brand new baby just born this morning would have a better time understanding the word of God than you drunken fools. And this rebuke is quite telling. He then says, uh, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. And the, the, the Hebrew on this is like baby talk. It's la, 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 la. 
And yet, you know, kind of the kind of mumblings a baby might make. And he says, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. So this very rebuke becomes a prophecy of the coming gift of tongues that is a, a hallmark of the, of the new church age. When Israel hears these Gentile languages, it's their warning sign. They've lost their stewardship. Their nation's about to be destroyed. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. The Christ is born, and they would not listen. They rejected their Messiah. So, the word of the Lord to them will be, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. That they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Ultimately speaking, the gift of tongues in the early church warned Israel that their national destruction was pending. And it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. They were stumbled, they broke, broken, they stumbled backward, they were broken, snared, taken captive. They lost their nation for nearly 1,900 years until our lifetime. Okay? Well, not my lifetime, but some of you. Some of you were here in 1948. All right? I read books. All right. So, the whole counsel of God's Word. Indeed, the Word of the Lord to them will be. It is baby talk. It is lama, 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 lama. Okay? A little bit here, a little bit there. Here a little, there a little. And for us, it's remarkable because we have a New Testament that's been supplied. We have a Greek canon that we can combine with the Hebrew canon. And we have the little here, the little there. We have the in part, the in part. We have the perfect once it's complete, Acts 17.11. The noble-mindedness of the Bereans to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. Don't believe it because the preacher says so. What does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Say, I think the pastor was dead wrong in Romans 13.1. That's his opinion. I don't like it. All right, we'll search the Scriptures then. What does Titus say? What does Second Peter say? Romans 13.1 doesn't sit by itself. These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the Word with great eagerness. They weren't slow to hear. They had great eagerness. Examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Okay, there's the walk by faith. Therefore, many of them believed Faith isn't empty. It's not blind. It's not trusting in nothing. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. What do they do? They search the Scriptures. It increased their faith. Uh, Acts 20, 27. And beyond verse 27, probably should add to that uh, verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. This is what Jesus was doing. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He is giving them a systematic, comprehensive, doctrinal development of why it is that Jesus had to go to the cross. Why it is that He was not on the cross against the will of God. He was on the cross according to the will of God. 
according to the foreknowledge, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He was on the cross in fulfillment of every burnt offering, sin offering, trespass offering, guilt offering, all the sacrificial typology of, of Leviticus fulfilled in him on that cross. Christ, our Passover, has been crucified. Indicates a systematic Bible study comparing Scripture with Scripture, synthesizing the whole counsel of God. And so if there's something that we're leaving out, show me the passage. Show me what's being left out. I want to know what it's about. If I'm, uh, you know, if, if there's a passage that pertains to the subject matter and it's being inappropriately left out, well then let me know. We'll put it in there. We've got we to incorporate that. The, to, because everything we're, we're leaving out is going to diminish our inductive study. You know, you teach marriage. Is there one passage in the Bible you teach marriage from? Or are there an assortment of passages throughout the Scriptures? From Genesis to Revelation, there's all kinds of things dealing with marriage. Now, maybe there's things you want to leave out. Maybe you don't go to judges and, and talk about ambushing uh, women in a park to, to get wives for the, the tribe of, uh, of Benjamin. That seemed to be a rather unique event because the tribe was on the verge of extinction. And it was a procedure that was put in place one time only for the rescue of, a, of an extinct tribe or nearly extreme, extinct tribe. Uh, that passage was not considered normative. It was not quoted in the New Testament. Jesus didn't say, use that judge's procedure when you pick out a wife for yourself. Okay, So I typically don't include that chapter of judges in any doctrine of marriage that I, when I teach the doctrine of marriage. And I freely admit, I have left that passage out when I taught the doctrine of marriage. But if you make the case for me that that passage ought to be included... And show me the scriptures, and I come under faith conviction that, okay, ambushing girls in a park is valid. Uh, well, the point is, we're not hiding anything. We don't want to hide anything. And if there's passages that we have chosen to exclude, and we need to, there are passages that you exclude because they don't pertain, maybe dispensationally, they're, they're not appropriate. Uh, there's other issues that we, that we exclude because we are rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, yes, we do uh, uh, limit the scope of, of certain verses we're looking at for, for biblical reasons. Okay, doesn't mean that we're hiding them. It means we've evaluated them and excluded them from this development. They don't pertain to this development. All right, and so um, I love the fact that uh, a believer who's an active part of a local assembly such as this one uh, for any length of time, brothers and sisters under doctrinal teaching for whatever length of time, they are exposed to the whole counsel of God's word. They're exposed to things that in other traditions of teaching. Uh, they would not be exposed to. They would never get anything related to that because that's always limited to seminaries. That's limited to pastors. That's limited to the you know, people in the pew. They don't need that. Yes, they do. And the moment you start picking and choosing and saying, here's a level of doctrine we're entitled to, but you can't handle, that's arrogance. That's, that's, that's uh, Nicolaitan uh, rebellion, this clergy-laity distinction. I want my flock to know the whole counsel of God's Word. I want them to understand why they 
Uh, if, if they're Calvinists, I want them to know why they're Calvinists. If they're Arminian, I want them to know why they're Arminian. If they're Amoraldianism, I want them to know why they're that. And if they don't know what they are, then they want to know more. <laughs> what am I? All right. I'm just walking with the Lord. Okay. And uh, I'm walking with the Lord and I know who He is. So I'm better than these two knuckleheads, right? I was teasing Dan before class. I think they're Tweedledee and Tweedledum. That's the two names of these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. All right. Well, point six. It's late, but it's not that late. Okay? Point six. It's late, but not that late. You know, we, we have all these opinions of when things are too late and then something changes and okay, it's not that late. They say, oh, it's so late, you can't travel any further, you need to stay here. And yet it's not that late that they go running back to Jerusalem tonight and start talking to the other disciples. I find this interesting. So they approached the village where they were going, as verse 28, and he acted as though he was going to go further. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Oh, come on, how far are you going to get? Really? I mean, you're not going to make it to the next village. Might as well just stop here. and You can stay with us. We'll feed you. And uh, when he had reclined to the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them, and then their eyes were open. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. It's like, you know, Mary Magdalene. She thought he was the gardener until he said, Mary. And the way that he said it, I don't know what tone of voice he had or what his expression was, okay? Probably similar to something I do a lot with my sister. My sister's name is Mary. And so she calls and, and calls me some strange name. And I call her some strange name because, you know, we love each other. That's what we do. And, um, but, you know, you just recognize the tone of voice. You recognize the expression. You know, you can turn Mary into about seven syllables if you go Mary, you know, and so forth. My kids can make dad a nine-syllable word, too. It's, it's amazing. They stretch out the word dad. Um, so that, that's what it took for Mary to realize it was Jesus, was the way that he said Mary. Uh, for these guys, it's the way they broke bread. It's the way that he blessed it and broke it, started handing it to them, and all of a sudden, just boom. No longer were their eyes under restraint. Their eyes were opened. They had been prevented, I believe, by divine power. I don't think it was intrinsic to his resurrection body. I think it was a work of divine power that affected their eyes. The expression when they were prevented from recognizing him, their eyes were croteoed, their eyes were held. And so I believe it was an act of divine power that, that affected their capacity to, to identify him. At that point then, in verse 31, it was released. And uh, when their eyes were open, they recognized him, and he, then he vanished from their side. Now all of a sudden they realize, hey, it's not that light after all. <laughs> Let's run back to Jerusalem. It's seven miles. How quickly can you cover seven miles? Okay. <laughs> That's right. Well, is a Mustang available? All right. The lateness of the day had prompted their offer of hospitality. The lateness of the day prompted their offer of hospitality. Nothing wrong with that. You recognize uh, a lot of different things about what time of day it is, if you missed a meal and different things. Jesus recognized this. He felt bad that people had been listening to him all day. It was getting late and, uh, and they were hungry. And the disciples were trying to send them home. Say, well, let them go into the village. Let them buy food. 
whatever, you know. Jesus says, no, let's not do that. You feed them. And then he proceeded to feed 5,000 that, on that particular night. Nothing wrong with recognizing the time of day and recognizing that, you know, I can go for a bacon cheeseburger right about now. Um, nothing wrong with that. The way Jesus broke bread opened their eyes. Just a mannerism, just something they'd seen before. And they'd probably seen it dozens of times before. So, you know, is there anything wrong with that? No, I think we get into routines. You do things the way you do things. People get accustomed to the way things are done. Um, You know, is is that unbiblical? Is it wrong? Is it, I think it's just human. We get into habits. We get into patterns. And uh, we grow, I think it's a benefit when we grow comfortable with one another, comfortable with the way things are done. Helps us to identify with where we belong. Finally, though, the lateness of the day does not hinder them from a seven-mile return hike to Jerusalem. They go running right back. They go running right back. They got up that very hour. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They can't wait till the next day even. Why not? Because now they know for a fact those uh, you know, unreliable women, maybe they, maybe they were right. Hmm. We saw the Christ too. We saw Jesus too. Those women, they were right. The grave is empty. The body is gone. Because he's alive. So the lateness of the day did not hinder them from the seven-mile return hike to Jerusalem. More lessons we can glean out of this too. Maybe, uh, you know, Ministry door opens for you. It's 10 o'clock at night. What are you going to say? Well, you know, we'll talk about that tomorrow. You know, I've already taken my shoes off. The door's locked. My wife and kids are already in bed. Go away. And what happens when they find the 11? The last we had seen them, they'd kind of scattered. Uh, some of them went to the tomb didn't find anything, went back to their own home. They went back to their own home. Notice that? The last time we saw the apostles, uh, verse 11, the words appeared to them as nonsense. They would not believe them. Peter got up, went to the tomb, and then he went to his own home, saw the linen wrappings, went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So Peter's with his home. They're not together anymore. But by the time they come back from Emmaus, they found gathered together the 11. They didn't gather the 11 together. When they got back, they found that the 11 were already gathered together. They got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the 11 and those who were with them. Well, what brought them back together again? I thought that all broke up. That all broke up when Peter went to the tomb and these two knuckleheads went to Emmaus. They come back to Jerusalem and they're back together again. Well, who convened that? Who sent that email out? Right? Let's get back together again. And what do they find? They've got this breaking news they want to share. and They actually find that there's more news they don't know about. So they come uh, into the picture here. And what do they hear? Okay. They found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying... This isn't the two saying this. This is the eleven and those who are with them saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. 
Now, these two, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, or okay, well, I'll get over that. Um, this would be Cleopas and what's his name? Okay, we don't know the second person's name. So Cleopas and the other guy. Maybe Mrs. Cleopas or Cleopas Jr. All right, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple. These two, the Emmaus Road guys, show up, and before they can say, Jesus is really alive, what do they hear? The 11 and the others with them are saying, Jesus is really alive. They're trying to reveal their late-breaking news, and they already knew. Because the appearance in the Emmaus Road wasn't the only appearance. In fact, he appeared to Cephas first, and then the twelve. All right. So they show up ready to tell their news, and before they can tell their news, the eleven are giving their news. The Lord has really risen, and he appeared to Simon. That's Simon Peter. Cephas. All right. They found, point one, they found the eleven and others gathered together discussing the Lord's appearance to Simon, otherwise known as Cephas, otherwise known as Peter. And this is what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 5. That of all the eleven, of all the, uh, the apostles of the Lamb, Peter was the first to whom he appeared. First he appeared to the women, of course. 1 Corinthians 15.5 This is the order of the resurrection appearances here. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Okay, nothing in here about Mary Magdalene, nothing in here about the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, but Cephas first and then to the twelve. And we're going to see that shortly because um, it's very quickly after this, down to verse 36 of Luke 24, when he finally appears to the twelve. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. Peace be to you. All right, so they found the eleven and others gathered together discussing the Lord's appearance to Simon. So they're showing up, can't wait to tell him, Hey, he appeared to us. We were on the road to Emmaus and he showed up. And before they can tell about that, they walk in and they're being told, the Lord's alive. He appeared to Peter. And so what do they say? Well, yeah, we were just about to tell you. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. He appeared to us also. Boy, he gets around pretty quick, doesn't he? We were huffing and puffing and and barely got back here. How did he get back and forth so quickly? Boy, that resurrection body is going to be fun. (laughs) All right? And popping into a room, he himself stood in their midst, verse 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Did he open the door? Did he walk through? Was, Was the door locked? How did he get there? Is teleportation something that we could look forward to in our resurrection bodies? Was he really there the whole time? He was just... Their eyes were restrained from seeing him. He was invisible. When he vanished from their sight, what was that? Was that invisibility or teleportation? Did he just uh, did he just uh, zap somewhere else? Or uh, you know, Scotty beam me up? You know, the the transporter beam of Star Trek. We know Philip uh, after he led the uh, Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. There, on he just disappeared and showed up on the road to Azotus. Okay. 
Should we expect that kind of thing in the, in the resurrection? All right, so they found the eleven and others gathered together discussing the Lord's appearance to Simon. And this is the order, to Simon first, then to the twelve. I'm out of time, but this is the last point. The, uh, the Emmaus Road disciples then explained their experiences. Explained their experiences. And I am out of time. This is where we get exegete. This is you know, when we exegete a verse. Jesus exegeted the Father in John 1.18. These two disciples exegeted their roadside experience. You and I should exegete our experience. Where were you when you first came to Christ? Where were you when your eyes were opened? You can't tell their story, but you can tell yours. Okay? I'm looking forward to telling mine. It was a Saturday morning in 1973. I don't know which Saturday, so I'm going to pick this Saturday. Okay? I'm at three days, four days from now. It's the first Saturday of the month, Saturday, uh, September 7th. Could be right, could be wrong, nobody knows. But mom sat me down at the dining room table and took me to 1 John 5 and led me to Christ 40 years ago. So we get to tell a story, get to exegete. We'll come back to this next hour, next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, for all that you have for us, Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.